listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And i got to tell you something, people. I was on Facebook, and John Karabi, who signed for Motley Crue for one album and is a singer from the Dead Daisies, posted that my guest's band that he found years ago should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I, he wanted to also tell me to my guest that he's a huge fan so, Mark, John Crabbe is a huge fan, and my guest founded Grand Funk Railroad. He has a new DVD coming out called From Chile. We're going to ask if it's Chile or Chile. With love, and my guest is Mark Farner. How you doing, Mark? Hey, Steve. It is Chile. Okay. <laughs> tell me, t- I want to talk about your history, but tell me about the DVD, because, you know, I, know, I saw on your website, you go, you'll autograph it and send it to people? Yes, the, all of the pre-orders will be autographed by yours true. And uh, $3 from every DVD goes to Veterans Support Foundation. Veterans Support Foundation helps our vets that are returning and are not uh, up on civilian life. And some need to have somebody to advocate for them uh, to get what they got coming. This is what Veterans Support Foundation is all about. It's of veterans, by veterans, for veterans. Nobody else is involved, so they get a lot done. And if I could give an 800 number, brother, I'd love to. If somebody knows a veteran that needs of help or just see a veteran on the street that needs help, if you get them this number, they can get the help free of charge. What's the number? 800 882 1316. It's toll free 800-882-1316. Veterans Support Foundation. Now, how'd you, how'd you get involved with the veterans? Because, you know, you're a rock star and a lot of times, you know, and I know you do a lot for, for uh, the community, but how did your, how did your work with the veterans start? What does it come from? It actually comes from, um, my father was a War II veteran, a tank driver in the 7th Armored Division. My mother was the first woman in the United States to weld on Sherman tanks, which was the type my father drove. And she worked at Fisher Body in Flint, Michigan, and was waiting on her man to get home. But she had her striker in her right hand, her helmet tipped back. The picture at the Flint Journal was her standing on a Sherman tank. And it, like it was, we can do this. No, dude, it was like, so I got that when I was young, when I was coming up. And then when I had the opportunity uh, to give back, I kept telling the guys, we can't just take, take, take. We have to give something back to the people. They give us so much. And so when we went to uh, our first European tour, uh, we played in uh, Schweinfurt, Germany. We played to 10,000 of our troops. Plus, there was over 20,000 civilians there. It was a nice party in a big field out there in Schweinfurt. The two semi-trucks, the trailers were back together, flatbeds. That was our stage. And the spotlights were three tanks setting out in front of the stage. And every time I'd run across the stage, that tank would follow me with the barrel like this and that target like uh, they loved it, and there's not a more appreciative audience, uh, Brother Steve, than our veterans. When you show up and you're there to play music for them, I'm telling you what, there's a lot of love coming your way. 
Oh, yeah. You know, my father, my father was also in World War II. My father was in the Navy. He was in D-Day. And he never talked about it. You know, he was one of those guys. And a lot of those veterans didn't talk about it. And what they did was, he's passed away since then, but they found out down, God, 20 years ago, or more than that, that his battalion, the guys who were on the boat, would always meet in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. So they would have a reunion and they'd all go down there and they'd give presents out. And even though they hadn't seen each other since, what, 1940, I mean, what, you know, 41? No, whenever at that time, they just, it was a community. But to me, he never talked about it. And I think a lot of veterans don't talk about it. And maybe with your help, they can come out and talk about it more. Now the, there's a lot of stuffing that goes on because we don't know. We civilians here, uh, we're safe, but our veterans risk their safety so that we can be safe. And when we have that kind of relationship with our veterans and we love them even more because we know that they're laying it on the line for us, um, they really appreciate that, buddy. They really do. So the bro- the proceeds from Chile, we'd love that. Uh, tell me, tell me about the concert. Tell me how you chose Chile, and tell me about the DVD. What can people expect to hear? Well, Steve, we were booked on a, a concert to play, or you know, a tour to play South America, and uh, a few weeks before we left. Uh, someone contacted my manager, Avi Steinman, and, said, and they said, hey, uh, we're from Abismo Films. Uh, we would like to shoot Mark Farner's show at Teatro Calpalican, and we'd do it, uh, you know, a very inexpensive deal, and it'll look great. And so Abi calls me, and he says, hey, man, there's a guy down there that wants to shoot you. He, he actually loves you. I talked to him. He's a big fan, um, and... Do you want to do that? I said, are you kidding me? Do I want to do it? Eight cameras shoot Santiago, Chile at Teatro Calpalica? Yes, dude, I want to do it. <laughs> so we meet these guys, and they are beautiful, loving people. And, uh, and they did a wonderful job. And I can tell you, for the first time, uh, there was a camera crew on that stage, and I never ran into one of them. Not one. <laughs> that's a miracle <laughs> I've always ran into the camera guys <laughs> but they they did a wonderful job and they captured what I hoped that they would capture and that is the response of the audience and the love that the audience pours out towards the band it is unmistakable it is habit forming brother this is why I'm still on the road, <laughs> you know, places like Santiago. There's 16 live performance tracks. There is two bonus videos on this DVD, one of which is available right now for a free download on markfarner.com. And there is also five bonus tracks. So for 16 performance tracks, two bonus videos, and Five bonus tracks, fourteen ninety nine. Such a deal. Exactly. And if they pre-order, they get an autographed copy. <laughs> Three dollars per copy goes to our veterans at Veterans Support Foundation. God bless them. 
So how how did your whole career start? When did you pick up guitar? Were you a young kid? When did this, because you've been rocking forever. When did it all start? Started when I was 15. I had, uh, I had been playing junior varsity ball, and we, uh, we scrimmaged the varsity team, and they, they stomped our asses. <laughs> <laughs> and I had, I had uh, water on the knee. I had fractured finger. Oh, it was, it was pretty bad. And so the doctor tells my mother, no more football for Mark and he's not going to be running track this fall. That's out of the question. And so my mother, she knew, Steve, how I love to hear my name called out on the loudspeaker when I'd make a tackle. I was defensive linebacker over center, and I was in on most every tackle, man. I I just had an instinctive way to go. You know, I'd follow that ball. And they'd call out, they'd say, that was number 66, Farner, in on the tackle. Boy, I go prancing across that field, buddy. I'm prancing. And so she knew that I was going to be down on my uh, uh, accolades. But she got me a guitar lessons, well, six lessons, and rented a K acoustic guitar for me to learn how to play guitar. I got three of the lessons before the guitar teacher shot himself in the foot with a 12 gauge, it was bird season in Northern Michigan and it was ringneck. Uh, he was out hunting and had a, had one of those bad accidents. So he called my mother, tells my mother, uh, just have Mark go watch the guys that are in the high school band because my sister who's 17 months older than I am, Diane uh, hung with these guys and had a band in the high school. So I'd go and hang out with them and I'd, you know, got introduced, and they they liked me. I was like a little brother to them, uh, and I'm I'm learning the guitar because I'm watching them play. I said, "Can I try to play that?" And, and you know, and I'd make the C chord, the D chord, what have you. And uh, I could sing all right. You know, back then I used to sing Johnny Be Good and uh, you know Nadine, and we used to sing a lot of the Beatles songs. And to to play out and do the battles of the bands, you got to learn all this stuff. So uh, I, I knew uh, pretty much, uh, you know, these songs, and uh, I could stand up there. And they said, well, well, what we'll do, we'll plug your guitar in and run it back, run that chord back through the handle of the amplifier and just let it hang over the back. We won't actually plug it in. We'll turn the little red light on, on your harmony amplifier. My mother got me a harmony guitar and amplifier off a uh, finger hut catalog, dude. This is back in the day of green stamps. <laughs> well, I had that little harmony amp back there with a strap going through and, and hanging over the back until I got good enough to actually plug in the front end of it and I could sing and play. But I was having a hard time, Steve, because I, I would put the rhythm down, I'd have that rhythm, and then I'd try to sing, and it's a totally different rhythm than what I'm playing, and I went to my Uncle Woody's house, and I said, I'm having a hard time with this singing and playing, is there any kind of thing that I should be doing, he says, yeah, put your ass down right there at that table, and he takes the flip journal, and he turns it upside down, he shoves it across the table, he tells me, now read it, 
upside down and backwards. Just the bold print. Just go through that image right there. Read that. Turn the next page. Read that. Get real good at reading backwards and upside down. It'll really help you out. So I got it together. I I mean, I got it to where I, I could do it pretty dang fast. At the end of one day, I was there. Wham, 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 wham. I was even reading the fine print now. You know, I was doing it. So I get back to my guitar, start playing and singing, dude. It was like, oh, my God, that was the key. That was the key. He unlocked it. He unlocked it for me. So I just wanted to share that, Brother Steve, in case there's maybe one of your listeners is having the same problem. There is a cure for it. So, so, you're, so you, you, you're getting good. You can do it. You can put it all together. How do you start? How do you start forming a band? And how did how did uh, Grand Funk Railroad end up becoming? Well, we played in a lot of various uh, versions of bands. I mean, we had uh, Mojo and the Nightwalkers. We had the Derelicts. We had a, you know other little bands that we put together. Where it'd just be two people playing, but we called it you know. And then we had one of those. Uh, Silvertone amplifiers from Sears, and you know it's got six six-inch speakers. The guitar player, Dirk Johnson, had one of these Silvertones. The bass player plugged into it. Kurt plugged into it. I plugged into it. All of the microphones plugged into it, and, and we thought we were badass, buddy. Because we had reverb. We had real reverb in there. It was one of those canned reverbs. But that's how it started, and evolved, and evolved, and evolved. And uh, I was in a band with Don Brewer. Uh, it was a five-piece band where I was just a stand-up singer. There was a guitar player, Kenny Rich, from Canada that played with us. Craig Frost played keyboards, and uh, we had uh, was it Rod Lester playing bass. But uh, Don Brewer definitely on the drums, and and we got called out to uh, Boston to play these gigs and they told us you know if you do good out here and, and they really like you we'll, we can go back into this market and make some serious cash so we thought we were out there doing this all for free and we did we said if that's what we got to do then if, if you can feed us and keep us alive then we'll go do that so we, we did that and there was a big snowstorm this is nice. It socked in the East Coast, dude. We were in summer cottages on Cape Cod, and uh, these Michigan boys had gone out, and we, hey, we got starfish. We got shells from the beach. We'd never been on the beach of the, you know, ocean before, so we're collecting things to take home. We put them down in the crawl space underneath these little uh, summer cottages there on the Cape, and uh, when the snowstorm came, and all the oh, all this weather, the basements flooded, dude. The pipes froze. Oh my God, we couldn't move. There we were in East Sandwich, Massachusetts, and the only thing we had to eat was oatmeal, nothing to put on it. And we, the guy at the the East Sandwich store, fronted us the oatmeal. <laughs> we have. Uh, you know, butter or sugar or any, no, just oatmeal. And what we had to do was uh, melt down the snow because the pipes were froze. We had no water. We melt down the snow, make the oatmeal, 
and make it through another day. And when we had to do number two, buddy, we had this chair that had no seat in it. <laughs> we took one of them big brown shopping bags and put plastic all in it, and that was our little uh, toilet there. And then when we got done with our little job, we'd go out and bury it in the snowbank someplace. <laughs> <laughs> That guy for spring cleanup, oh my God, what a terrible thing. Finally, the guy from East Sandwich uh, Grocery there let Brewer uh, call his mom from the phone. She, uh, Western Union, some money to us, but we had to hitchhike up the coast to this drugstore uh, that was the nearest Western Union office. So Brewer and I take off, we hitchhike up there, get the money, uh, rent a van, stuff all our stuff in it, and go back to Michigan. And the two guys that were married, both the keyboard player and guitar player, both of their wives threatened to divorce them. <laughs> had to quit the band, dude. And I look at Brewer and I said, dude, we need to just, like, put together a three-piece. There's a lot of three-piece bands, you know? I said, we could be a three-piece. And, and we got to get a player that's not married and doesn't even have a girlfriend, dude. We don't want the women messing this up this time. <laughs> so uh, we go up to Michigan, and these guys that put us out there on the coast, it was Delta Promotions, and they had a facility up there in Bay City, Michigan, where uh, they had a rehearsal facility and a recording facility and what have you. And it was all music business. So we're sitting in the waiting room waiting to get in to talk to Keyholdus, the head guy of this place. But we can hear that there's a band in rehearsing in their facility, but we, we could only hear the bass. We couldn't hear anything else because you could just hear this bass throbbing through the whole building. And I'm, I sat there and I looked over at Brewer. I said, dude, are you listening to the bass player? Can, can that guy play or what? He's going, man, I was saying the same thing to myself. We're going to have to find out who this dude is. So when they take a break, Mel Shocker walks out. And Mel and I had gone to school together. We rode dirt bikes together. We smoked dope together. We did everything together. And it's like, hello, man, how you doing? He says, what are you guys doing here? I said, well... We came up here to see Eho, but man, we're listening to you play bass through the wall, and we're thinking, we want to put together a three-piece group. Would you be interested in playing bass? He said, hell yes, dude, I am so ready to leave this band because there was some internal kind of conflicts or something. So uh, he left, and we started playing in the Flint Federation of Musicians on Averill Street in Flint, Michigan, and uh, Frank Geyer... Uh, was the secretary there, and he would come out about every five minutes and goes, you boys, turn them things down. We can't <laughs> even hear the damn phone ring. <laughs> but that's where it started, brother, and uh, and that's where I wrote the first album. It was right there at the uh, Flint Federation of Musicians. How hard was it for you to get a record contract back then? You said you wrote the first album. What was the process of getting that to vinyl? Well, we got a lucky break um, as a garage band. Uh, we got to play opening act at International uh, Pop Festival in Atlanta, Georgia uh, in, in 1969 there. 
And uh, our attorneys were the same attorneys that were doing the legal work for this pop festival. So they worked a deal where their act, you know, Grand Funk Railroad, could go on, open this uh, show up, and they would make uh, some kind of arrangement in the fee that they charged to compensate for it. You know, it was, it was a deal. So uh, we got there and played, and the audience, they didn't want us to leave the stage, brother. They just kept calling us back for encore after encore. They just, they did not want to let go of us. And, uh, and people that were there backstage, of course, a lot of bands, uh, Capitol Records was there, and, and uh, Capitol talked to Terry Knight, our manager at the time, and they, we ended up going with Capitol Records, but we signed a deal with Terry Knight, who had a, a production deal with Capitol Records. That's how it happened. They saw us. They wanted us. So you, you get the sign. You get the first album out. When, I mean, because, I mean, you guys were selling out Shea Stadium. I mean, it was insane. When, what was the swing that took you from having a first album to selling out Shea Stadium, I mean, being the biggest act in the world, what was the what made that happen? There had to be something that when you look back, say, you know, because you can say, well, we got lucky with the record deal, but you got to kick ass to become that popular. What was the course from you starting out, as I said, a band with one album? How long did it take for the upscale till you became so huge? And was it a rocky road to get there? It was a smooth road to the top, and all it took was that first international Atlanta Pop Festival to get us off the ground, because those people were not all from the Atlanta, Georgia area that showed up there, Brother Steve. They were from all over this nation, and the word went out about Grand Park Railroad. Pretty soon, we got another one, Texas International we did another one up in Oklahoma, big festival. And we did uh, Strawberry Fields in Montreal, Canada, big festival. We're talking, you know, tens of thousands, a hundred of thousands, 185,000 in Atlanta. So when you get that kind of audience from all over the world, even at this point, uh, the word goes fast. And that is what got us, what sold us. And the energy coming from the stage, I wrote 92% of the Grand Funk catalog. And my songs basically, man, were talking about uh, why is it this way? Um, you know, they promised me freedom, but I don't see freedom. You know, the, the, let's save the land. Let's look at the, the land. Let's do something to save this country. You know, uh, the music was speaking out a long time before the issues had really uh, swelled up to the point uh, where people got interested in it, but that the underground was carried by Grand Funk, and it was carried in love, and everything was all about love, and it wasn't about, let's go shoot somebody, no, it's let's go love somebody, man, and, uh, and that was what was You're, uh, can you move up to the mic a little bit, you're, you're cutting out a little bit on me. You were cutting out a little bit. Can you come up a little bit more when you talk? Oh yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, but I, I heard you. But so, so, what was it like though for you? You know, you're playing in Flint, Michigan, and then all of a sudden you're playing in these large festivals. How, as a performer, 
did you adjust to that? Because it's got to be a big difference. I mean, it's just must be crazy. Yeah, it's a big adjustment. Uh, but but what was driving us was the, the accolades. Uh, you know, until you've experienced standing on a stage and physically feeling waves of emotion, you, you can't deny it. And, and that's, that emotion comes from the love that this audience has for you. And, and that, you can't put a cap on it, man. It, it swells up. It's, it's like something supernatural. It was outside of Don and Mel and Mark's abilities. Uh, all we do is show up and play and mean it when, when I say save the land or mean it when I say think closer to home. You know, just really delivering the songs the way that they uh, that they were hearing them on the vinyl, and uh, and that's what made us so popular that the, the people loved us, man. I mean, they still love us today. And I wish the guys could get out with and that the band would get back together and for the sake of the real Grand Funk Railroad fans get out there and give it to them. You know, I'm a, a fan too. I'm a music fan too, Steve. And when the Beatles were all still sucking air, I kept saying, man, why can't you guys just bury the hatchet? Do it for us fans. Get out there on the road because I want to see the Beatles. I really wanted to see those guys, man. I wanted to be part of that. Uh, and so I can I can really uh, stand alongside a fan who's going, you guys, you need to put that stuff aside. That's just bullshit. You need to get back up on the stage for the fans. And that's really where my heart is today. But those other two guys uh, have not given in yet, have not caved in to me saying every year to them, uh, we need to go back and give them the real band. Um, even if there was nothing but the money involved. <laughs> Wouldn't there be a lot more money for the original band uh, than what any, either one of us can make separately? Seriously. So I keep bringing it up, but I get keep getting shot down. Well, you know, it, it, that, is, that is amazing because people would definitely pay for that. Um, so back to when you were getting bigger, you start making money. How is your life changing? Because you're a rock star now. You're not, you know, you're a rock star. What? How does? How did your life change? And you were young too, so that makes it even more exciting. Yeah, I bought a farm, a hundred and ten acre farm, when I was twenty one years old, and uh, that was pretty dynamic for a, a rock star. <laughs> a kid from Flint, Michigan. Uh, yeah, and, but I always loved going out and working on my Uncle Jack's farm. He had a dairy farm in the Thumb of Michigan in Marlette. And I would go out every summer and work on that farm with him and stay there. And, man, I said, you know, as a little eight-year-old kid, I'm out there. Um, I'm on the hay wagon riding there with my cousins, and I'm thinking to myself, if I ever make enough money, when I get big, I'm going to buy a farm. When I get older, I'm going to be a farmer, a, a farming farmer. <laughs> <laughs> tell me tell me about the, the writing of the song, I'm Your Captain. The writing of that song came from a prayer. 
prayer. My mother showed us six kids. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep prayer, you know, and we said every I still pray all the time, pray every day, pray every night. But on the yes part, you know, when you're blessing grandma, grandpa, uncles, and aunts, and everybody, and, and then I put a little yes. God, could you please give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those you want to get to? That's what I prayed for. I went to sleep. I woke up 3 a.m. I grabbed my legal pad. I'm writing these words. I'm, I'm half between uh, conscious and, and asleep. I'm, I'm in that groggy area. And as the words are coming to me, I'm writing them down. And it's not making a whole lot of sense to me. It just, I just, you know, I didn't try to put it together because I didn't need to. In that frame of mind, it was okay to just write them down. I write a lot of things. They're not all songs. They're not even all poetry. They're just things, just seeing, just something to say. So I didn't uh, look to this for any special purpose or anything. I just got up in the morning. I go in and grab my coffee. Sitting there drinking the coffee, looking at the horses out in the pasture, and uh, I grab my George Washburn acoustic guitar out of the corner, and I start playing. And I'm like, "Ooh, that's kind of cool." And then I do this, and I hit that C chord inversion. It was like, "Oh, it's a chiming D. Wow, that is a badass chord right there." I'm looking at it, I'm hitting it, and I kept playing it over again, and I went. Maybe those words, maybe that is a real song in the other side. Go and grab the words, put them down on the table, start playing. Everybody, listen to me. You know, it just came. It just came out. And that day when I went to rehearsal, I took the song, took my new song, <laughs> and I played it for the guys. And then uh, Mel and Don said, Partner, man, that's you got a hit there. That song's a hit. They were right. <laughs> How did you find out that you sold Shea Stadium out? Because it's not, not like now, like, you know, there's there's internet. And I was talking to someone earlier today, and I was trying to explain about when we had to go get in line to get tickets, you know, and, and it wasn't go online. We had, I always say, no, not go online, get in line. You had to get your ass down. For us, it was, you know, the Woolworth in the Cherry Hill Mall, and you'd have to get there or the wall-to-wall sound, and you'd wait, and you'd be sitting there outside, and we were in New Jersey, so if it's the winter, you're freezing your ass off, and you're like, this better be worth it. You know, you're sitting there, and you you're getting, you can't call anybody like, did you get tickets there? Because there's no cell phones. How did you guys find out? Because, I mean, you sold out Shea Stadium Faster than Beatles, you sold sold out in what, like a few hours? Seventy one hours. It sold out in seventy one hours, and Harry Knight was so ecstatic. Uh, he was keeping track of it, and he called everybody uh, as soon as he found out it was sold out. Called everybody and said, "Guys, the audience slept out at." Shea Stadium last night on the lawn with their tents and their sleeping bags and what have you, just so they could be the first ones in line to get tickets, and they sold 55000 at the ticket office. That's where you could get the tickets. They were not available online. Online wasn't even there yet. And well, it was like you said, you had to go to the ticket office and physically be there, give them the cash, 
Texans, and you guys sold it faster than the Beatles. Well, being that I wrote all the music uh, back then, at that point in time, and, and all that music uh, was my music coming from the stage at Shea Stadium, but I was so proud about that gig to have the New Yorkers and the people that are there, you know, people from Jersey and, and our fans, so ready to see us. They were just man, chomping at the bits. When when Humble Pie uh, closed their set, it was like, man, they rocked them. They really rocked them. They had just finished our European tour, and and when we were there in Europe, they were, you know, every night we were going, man, these guys are kicking ass. These guys are a good band. We need to take them back to the United States with us and, and play Shea Stadium. Yeah, and that was... Like I said before, when you get that many people seeing you at one time, holy crap, man. Uh, they loved uh, Humble Pie, and the, the, the stage was set up at second base, Steve. So we were really close, and because that Shea Stadium was a, like a half circle, you know. And when we flew over in the helicopter, you could see that damn thing was just bouncing. The whole stadium was bouncing, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, is that safe to go in there? (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we land at the parking lot where the limo was supposed to have been to pick us up, but there was no limo. But one of the guys with us ran down to the telephone booth on the corner, and he put his dime in there, or it might have been a nickel. I don't know. (laughs) It wasn't much. He makes a call, and like two or three minutes later, we got cop cars come in with it lights and sirens on we jump in the back of the cop cars we boogie over we beat uh, all this traffic lights and sirens going over to Shea Stadium we pull up there's the limo so we get out of the cop cars get in the limo drive into Shea Stadium and the audience uh went off man they got they went crazy they saw their guys down there and we came on the stage with a lot of love and we gave a lot of love, but there's no way that we gave more than what was coming at us, man. That was a special, special night. Now, around that time, you split with your manager. Yes. What brought that up? And, you know, and is it hard? Well, first of all, you know you're going to be able to get another manager because you're one of the biggest bands in the world. But what brought that about? And was it, was it, was it a very volatile breakup? Well, what brought it about was us discovering some things uh, that we had been lied to about. Uh, And the main thing was Gary told us the 6% that the band was receiving was more than the Beatles got. So we thought, wow, we got a better deal than the Beatles. But we didn't know until uh, we were compromised we owed the Infernal Revenue Service $400,000. We didn't have the cash. They said, what we'll do is we'll loan you guys the cash. If you sign another three-year contract, we'll give you to pay the Infernal Revenue Service. And I go, this is bad. We, we can't just make a decision like this. And they we go, okay, we'll go in the other room. So they left the room. And I'm there with these two guys, my partners at the crime, 
and I said, you know, it just doesn't feel good. These guys are going to loan us the money if we sign. This doesn't that feel like you're getting I sit down in this lawyer's big chair and I got my feet kicked up on his desk and said something. And when I sat up, my feet hit the top drawer. The drawer came open. And here's a contract between Capitol Records and Goodnight Production for 16%, Steve. So Jerry was taking 10 given the band six to split, and then taking a management commission of our 6%. And when we did that European tour that I mentioned, uh, he had talked us into leaving the money that we made in a, a Swiss bank account with the most stable world currency, which at the time was Deutschmarks. Uh, we were told that it went in there. We never saw a dime of that. We never got paid for that tour. He did. Oh, yeah, Terry Knight. So, so once once we found out about that 16%, I just said, we got to tell them when they come back in here, we need more time, give us a couple of days. And so that's what we did. And in that couple of days, we got a hold of, of Eastman and Eastman and uh, started this lawsuit that we ended up settling out of court. But we ended up with the name... And Terry ended up with everything else. It's it's amazing. Now, how when you how did you find a new manager that you're going to trust? Because it's you know when you think about it, I mean he screwed you, and 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 it's like anything. If someone screws us, like if you go through a divorce, you know you're not going to just start dating again because because you're bitter, you're angry, and you're like oh you know. So how did you guys find a new manager? Well, the road manager that we had had been filling us in on a few things, too, as far as numbers and some things that were not adding up. Andy Cavalieri went from road manager to manager. We appointed him as our manager because he was the guy that we could trust with our money. And so he was in-house already, and we just put him in the right spot and went on. Now, you said earlier that you wrote, at the time you were writing 92% of the music. When did you start sharing the writing responsibilities? Was that a mutual choice, or was it just something that you did not feel like writing as much anymore? Well, some of the songs that I was working on, uh, I hadn't even thought of a chorus or a, you know, a melody line for a verse or anything. I, I just They were just jams. So one of them, uh, like Shining On, you know, Brewer says, hey, have you got any lyrics to that yet? I'm hearing something. I said, no, I don't have any lyrics to it. Go ahead and write some. So this is how we, in anything that Brewer and I wrote, uh, it was me writing the music, him writing the lyrics. I never wrote one lyric in any song that him and I uh, co-wrote together. That's how it was. I I did the the music. And after we got done recording American Band, I had, uh, I heard a cowbell on the front of I said, this this song needs a cowbell. And uh, Brewer didn't have a cowbell. He says, well, I'll pick one up. I said, no, I'll pick six of them up. And we'll pick the one that best matches the chord that we're playing this song in. Got to have some coordination. So he brings six. He picked the right one. And... I, did, I could hear this 
music as Don is singing the, the lyrics, and he has little little chords on the guitar. Uh, just it, it wasn't anything like ended up on the album. It just showed a uh, construction. I would hear that. I'd say, hey man, what about this? And 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 then what about this on the background goes? I wrote a lot of that song. Uh, truth be known. So Brewer comes after the session and he says, Mark, I've never had 100% songwriting on any song. Would you mind if I take it on this one? I said, go ahead. Immediately. I said, go ahead. You know why? Because I'm a nice guy, Steve. I'm a nice guy. And even getting screwed as bad as I've been screwed and as many times I've been screwed by people, it's not going to change me. I'm still going to be nice because I believe in love and love is what's driving me. And, uh, Hate is what drives some other assholes. So now we just talk about American Band. I mean, American. Um, we're an American Band. How did Mar- How did Todd Runner get involved with you guys? Because he 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 came in and produced some stuff for you. Was that something that you knew of him, or was that something that the record company suggested? That was his name being drawn from a hat. But Lynn Goldsmith <laughs> was about Todd. And she said, I'm so glad you pulled Todd Rundgren's name out of there because I've worked with him. He's a great guy, blah, 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 blah. And once he came to Michigan and he worked with the band, uh, it was it was easy. It was really easy uh, to play music and have him, you know, produce it because he's a natural and he doesn't really have to work hard at anything that he does. It, it just comes out of who he is and his knowledge. So, uh the uh, the first stuff you know American Band and uh, uh, Locomotion uh, the stuff that he produced uh, it just really gave the band a new sound a, a fresh uh, awakened sound and it was more like what we wanted it to sound like. So you're 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 in the band now. What happened? You know I know you know a lot of times people forget that. You know, the band's life, you know, you're recording, you're touring. You were young guys when you started. And people, you know, it's funny. People always forget that the, the person you are when you start, when you're young, and then you get very, very successful. And then there's hills and valleys. And I think people forget that we all grow. But growing when you are on stage and everybody sees you, you don't have the chance to be as vulnerable or emotional, just everyone always expects something to you. Is that why the band started breaking up? What what happened that had you guys break up? In 1976, we were at the Swamp, which was our recording studio and rehearsal facility, and we were waiting for Brewer, and he was like an hour and a half late, and he was never late for anything. So we kept thinking, Maybe he was in an accident. We start calling around. You know, there was no cell phones or any of that stuff back then. He finally gets there an hour and a half later and walks in and he says, you guys, I got to find something more stable to do with my life. It's over. I quit. And I, I looked at him. I said, more stable? Are you kidding me? He said, nah, man, I'm over it. And he left. And that was it. That's how the band broke up. Uh, I went from that point. I went to 
calling different people. I said, man, we got to keep this thing alive. I got to keep playing music, man. I can't quit playing music. It's in my blood, and it's what I do. So I put together a solo band and can't play. And I did two albums on Atlantic. Now, you also uh, played, you went into the Christian music for a while. What, yeah. Was that because, well, what's the transition from like a rock band to Christian? Because you're still a rock and roller, you know, and it's like, and is it just lyrically that makes it different? What is the, the, the transition and what made you decide to do that? Was it some kind of awakening or some, you know, epiphany you had? Yeah. God Rock came in about. 1985, I think, was uh, our first release. But in 82, my wife had left me. And I had the two kids. I kept thinking, oh, she'll, she'll be coming back. You can't live without me. I was Mr. Ego, you know. I think, well, she, you know, why would she leave me? And I, I had all of these things going through my mind, brother. But uh, she wasn't she wasn't coming at back to me and one day I'm sitting there I'm about halfway through a 12 pack I look over in my living room of uh, a house that we we built uh, I mean I bought a sawmill out of the back of Popular Mechanics and I, I put it together and I ran the damn thing with a motor off my 55 uh, John Deere combine it was our six cylinder Hercules that I cut up all this lumber with I'm in this house I look and over in the corner of the, the log cabin it appeared to be like the corner opens up, and this is like, dude, I wasn't taking uh, LSD or I was, you know, I'm just, a, I'm only six beers into this twelve pack, so I know it's not, I'm not hallucinating this, but it was a vision that I was given, and I saw myself as a nine year old kid standing in front of the first television set that we had, um, that my dad bought just before he died. And, and I'm standing there with my hand on the television set, and I'm praying with Billy Graham, who at the time was doing a crusade in Flint, Michigan, and my dad had just passed, and all my grandma, aunts and uncles, my mom, people of the family were in the dining room, and they were all just sobbing and crying and, you know, can't believe that he's gone. And I walk into the living room where this television set is, and Billy Graham is on there, and he's saying, if you need a touch from God, if you're hurting, if you're sad in your heart, if you, and he's saying all this shit, I'm going, my nine-year-old ears are going, he's talking to me. He's talking to me. So he says, if, if you want love in your heart, if you want a change in your situation, Come and put your hand on the television. So I put my hand on the television. And I prayed with Billy Graham. And and I I really felt like something special happened because when you're hurting that bad in your whole family, you've got nobody to talk to, nobody to lean on, nobody to reason with, and all of a sudden you get a piece about it. It was it was something special. But I went on, became this uh, rock star, what have you. When my life my life changes when my wife left, and I start thinking about oh my god I got to go find God so I go to these churches dude I walk in it's hellfire and brimstone I'm out of there <laughs> right in the middle as soon as they start you know that hellfire and brimstone horseshit it's 
That's not Jesus. That is not Jesus. It's, it, Jesus is love. God is love. So that's what I'm looking for. I'm, I'm needing that love. I'm, I ain't needing all this other crap. So I went to several churches, and I finally got into this little church where it's an older congregation. The guy who's preaching is like 86 years old. And he's preaching on the institution of, God, of marriage according to God's word and how people walk out the front door of the church and they leave all the hope and they leave this commitment behind in the church instead of taking it with them and living it every day. And it's like, this guy knows me. He knows my story and he's preaching to me. And so when he gave an altar call, I ran up there, dude. I couldn't get up there quick enough. And I rededicated myself to the Lord, to love, uh, in spite of everything else that your eyes may see. If you walk by your heart, you can go through this life and you can make it. Walk by heart, not by sight. So I'm, I'm uh, praying with him. You know, he's, and, and then he says, uh, is there anything that you need? I said, yeah, I need my wife back, dude. I, I mean, can, can you pray? And he says, I'll tell you what, you pray, I'll agree. Well, I prayed that God would uh, send her back to me and that we would do that together and that we'd never be separate again. And he agreed. That day, 50 miles away in another city where she was living, Lisa received Christ as her Savior. And uh, we've been married 43 years, brother, and uh, we're going to finish our life out together because it's about love. It ain't about any kind of picayune bullshit from her or picayune bullshit from me. It's because it's all bullshit here, <laughs> you know, on this planet. We just got to stick with love because that's the only thing that's really real. And that's who we are in our heart. That is the essence of our true power. It's in love. And that's why people don't find it. They ain't looking for it. And if they're looking in the sky, they're looking in the wrong place because the kingdom of heaven is right here inside us. And each one of us have the ability to go there. But that, that's like a secret that the church has been keeping from people. They'll take your money, but they won't give you the truth. You know, And, and I, I'm not a church-going guy. I'm a Christian. I believe in love. And I believe that that blood was shed for all races. And all races, no matter what they are, they have red blood. And so that blood is good for all of us. And we all go. And that's what I believe. And it's all about the love. And everything else is just bullshit. So is that why you started writing the Christian music? Just to get your message apart across because you're saying, I don't want to get pulled. I don't want to, I don't want to sell a, a, a pile of bullshit. I want to sell them what I'm thinking. Is that when you, and, and was that writing process different for you than when you wrote earlier with, uh, with Grand Funk Railroad? Oh yeah, it was much different, Steve, because this, uh, I didn't want to, uh, you know, come off as like I'm separating. I'm not going. I'm not coming back to the world. I'm going to stay in the church. I, I wanted people to know I was coming to them in the in the nightclubs. I'm coming to the bars. I'm coming to you where you're at, and I'm going to sing my music. And I would always mix the grand funk with a little God rock, and I get to talk to people uh, in the songs that I wrote. I was under a religious spirit at first, and so some of that came out in, in that writing, the songwriting. But when I got set free is, uh, you know, 
that's what I can help people with. And it's even in my guitar. I can play my guitar and it will prophesy of this love that's in me. This love is the love that we all came from. When I died seven years ago, I had a pacemaker put in. And when I died, dude, as soon as you leave the bone suit, you are present in heaven with love. All of us. That's how good that blood is. It ain't, well, if you do this, you might make it. Well, if you pay enough money, that's a bunch of horseshit. People tithing, that is horseshit. It's all horseshit when money's involved. When they sign a 501c3, they give a man the authority over their ministry for God. Man has no place before God. You're saying. One more question before yeah. we go. You said earlier in the interview that you try to you've tried to get the band back together. And I know you guys played together for a little bit in like the in ninety, ninety-three around. Yeah. So what what is the holdup? What is it? I mean, is I mean you seemed like the breakup, it wasn't it didn't seem like you guys were like bitching at each other. You know, it seemed like Dom wanted something more stable, which you're a huge band. I can't figure something more stable in the music industry. But what what has been the holdup? Because they're out touring, and, and you're right. If it was all you guys together, people would be like, holy crap. Because younger people know your music now, but your fans who have been fans forever look forward to that. What is the holdup? Or, I mean, what is it just, do you guys have bad blood now, or what happened? No, the holdup is... From those other two guys, um, I have been, for 20 years, Steve, I've been trying to get them to put the band back together, give the fans something that we can't give them when we are separate. Together, we could give them grand funk. Separate, they can give them a tribute band, because they don't have the guy that's, that sang and wrote 92% of the music. They got some other guys. It's hateful in its nature because um, they took me to federal court and they a permanent injunctive order was put against me to where you could only advertise formerly of Grand Funk Railroad. That had to be 50% of the Mark Farner font size and only the first letter of each word was capitalized and must be capitalized. And that's a violation. And so all of these violations start coming in because when you send the promoter that contract, he doesn't send it over to the radio stations. We don't send it down to the paper. He's the only one that reads that language and so all these other people are violating the shit out of things and I get, you know, attorneys uh, cease and desist. I'm going to court. I'm, you know, the, the last thing was uh, I applied for and received a trademark. Mark Farner's American Band. They didn't like that, so they sued me. And uh, it went to federal court. But uh, they ended up, at the last minute, they had to fold because they weren't standing on anything solid. It was BS. And I got my trademark. And not only did I pay my attorneys thousands and thousands of dollars, I had to pay one-third of their attorney fees, dude because I'm a shareholder of the corporation. And uh, <laughs> I, I, do, I didn't get any money. <laughs> I 
<laughs> I gave it to the attorneys. <laughs> it's it's kind of a like you were saying, dude. Uh, try to put two people that have been divorced. Try to put them two people back together. Woo! Yeah, there's some hurt feelings. It's I have forgiven those guys. I really have. If you didn't, that shit would eat your lunch. Uh, but it don't eat mine. I forgive them because forgiveness is the the prettiest thing. It's the most beautiful thing. It is the most powerful thing that you can do. It it's it sets you free. So I set myself free. I didn't want any of that crap. I let let them do whatever they they're gonna do. And all I can do is keep saying, you guys, we need to go give the fans what our fans deserve. They do deserve to see the real band before they kick the bucket. <laughs> and they do. And I, I want to thank you for coming on today, Mark. Um, now, promote promote your Chile. I'm going to say that from that Chile. I'm always like, is it Chile? Because I've never been there. Now, uh, give, give, give the people how to get in touch with you. MarkFarner.com from Chile with love. Remember, $3 from each DVD goes to Veterans Support Foundation. And we'll rock the vets. We'll rock our audiences. And when it comes out April 6th, but every pre-sale will be autographed by me. And you can go to download a free video from this concert, Rock and Roll Soul. It was done in Santiago, but whether you can't tell it wasn't done in California. They got a Camaro, a nice Camaro. They got, uh, you know, American Flag. They got Craftsman tools with the red, white, and blue stripe. I mean, you know, you got, it's very Americana. And uh, so people, I'm happy about this. I'm really excited about this release. And uh, you won't regret buying this DVD. God bless you. So, people, check it out. Go to markfarner.com. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 830 episodes. Email me, cooper, at coopertalk.net. At Twitter, it's at coopertalk. At Instagram, it's coopertalk1. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.